Hola, I am Pia Cruzalegui, and this is a new episode of Oral Fixation. I met my next guest some years ago, but it was not until the exhibition Bodies, Material, and Digital Substances and Containers in Chicago back in 2019, an exhibition that explores the fluidity of the body and its perception and representation within the realms of gender, identity, and digital materiality that I became curious of her practice. Today, I am incredibly delighted to have Clarice Hill as my next guest in Oral Fixation. Clarice has an interdisciplinary pedagogical art practice working with digital performance, virtual reality development, photography, experimental filmmaking, and immersive installations. She is a scholar whose research practice is activated by exploring diverse forms of intersecting media art and performative notions. She investigates virtual spaces, what she calls virtual counter-cartographies, interactions transferred from the virtual world to the real world and vice versa. She meditates on the intersection of identity and the evolution of technology, artificial intelligence, and its predictability in algorithms and surveillance through the lens of an Afro-Caribbean American woman and her societal role as a feminist academic disruptor. Clarice is Assistant Professor of Extended Realities and Emerging Technologies, Contemporary Visual Studies and Media Arts with a special focus on critical simulations and critical media design at Northeastern University, where she started as a postgraduate teaching fellow in 2021. In 2023, Clarice gave conferences in Sweden, Finland, and Australia. She has made pedagogical appearances in the UK at the Royal College of Art, Anglia Ruskin University, Goldsmith College, University of London, University of Sussex, at the City University of New York Graduate Center, Chicago Art Department, and Smack Mellon in Brooklyn. Her digital performances have been exhibited in Chicago, New York, London, France, and in cyberspace. Some of Clarice's essays and articles are a Survival Praxis Through Hood Feminism, Negritude, and Poetics, published in the Architecture and Culture Journal, and If the Earth Spoke to You as a Black Woman, published in Antenna. I'm really excited to have you in the podcast. Thank you for having so, me. Clarice, what is your practice about? Um, my research and practice right now, I'm really thinking about um, virtual worlds and how to build virtual worlds. And most recently, I have been thinking about um, the cross-contamination between virtual worlds and real life um, and how learning in virtual worlds can kind of ooze out of the virtual um, and the binary and the coded um, computational space into real life and what um, those considerations could look like. So I've just written an article thinking about that, how learning how to navigate in virtual spaces, especially by upending the dependence on Cartesian coordinates could provide a framework for how um, people can navigate in real life. Um, so thinking about the disruption or the disorientation of the Cartesian coordinate as like, you know, the desire to be at a zero point and right side up, what would it look like if that wasn't the intention or if, um, or if that was disrupted, maybe it's not to be right side up, maybe it's to be upside down and what does that disorientation look like and how could it contribute to a thriving and surviving praxis in, uh, in real life. And so my work is really the, full body of my work for for about the last like I would say six years um, is really thinking about how to create virtual spaces um, that are counter narratives or is using the technology as against its intended purpose um, that is one output of my practice is building these computational spatially compu spatial computated worlds um, but then the other part is also writing alongside of that performative um, interventions alongside of that work and really thinking about the kind of like oozing and the transferring of uh, materiality from the virtual to reality and vice versa. Okay. So there's a few things that you have mentioned here and, um, and I want to sort of tap into them a little bit. So what is this cross-contamination? Can you unpack that? What does it really mean 
to cross-contaminate the virtual and the real world and vice versa. So it's something I've been thinking about. I don't have like definite answers as it's still in its experimental uh, stages. Like we ever have answers as artists <laughs> for our work. Uh, just attempts and attempts at inquiries, um, never resting at an answer. But thinking about how the the virtual world allows for um, the unexpected or the unorthodox navigation, right? Um, because it is dictated by the person who builds the world, so the world builder. Um, so I'm interested in think in using my virtual worlds and thinking about my virtual worlds as mostly meditative spaces. So my practice so far and continuing is about building these meditative spaces, thinking about storytelling in these meditative spaces, but also thinking about the conventions that happen in these virtual worlds. So it is very much about like it's just a 3D space and navigation happens. There's an expectation of navigation. Um, and that's what I'm working on now is like thinking about this expectation of like uh, navigation and coordinates um, specifically. And I'm thinking about like what happens if we can start to learn in this virtual world how to upend those coordinates. What are the counter cartographies that might be possible or the um, uh, ways of adjusting um, and kind of like subverting the concept of navigation, not just in spatial considerations, but also in like social situations um, in, in real life. And so this is all of an experiment and kind of like where I'm thinking now, after I've done, uh, I did a conference presentation where I kind of like presented this and I, um, this idea and I um, am working on an article and still writing my way through it. But I'm okay. very much interested in virtual worlds as pedagogical spaces because simulations are pedagogical, right? Like if you think about right. how they're used in military and in gaming contexts, even in like casual gaming contexts, they're still pedagogical. They're still teaching us something that we do take out of that virtual space. Um, and so I'm interested in like subverting or upending the uses in terms of, I tell my students all the time, like, a, like you know, games and simulations, they're used for like training military, um, training the military. And then when that simulation, you know, becomes activated, is in, a, is in a situation and that situation is in real life. It's never in the actual simulation. Um, so I'm thinking a lot about like these cross contaminations and the virtual as a pedagogical tool and how can other types of methodologies, maybe outside of the Western canon or the computational canon, contribute to uh, thinking about how to use virtual spaces in um, against their intended use or in subvertive um, in subverting their kind of like mainstream use. Um, and so that's what I'm kind of like thinking about uh, currently. So what is the Completely difference between? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's good. But you are talking about cross contamination. What is, how does, why, why isn't it a cross pollination? And I know the difference between mm -hmm. those two words, but why couldn't it be a cross pollination? I do like cross pollination. Yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking about contamination because there is this notion of what these virtual spaces are used for and how they become activated. And I think maybe that language comes from kind of like reading into the history of, of these virtual spaces and the use of a simulation at, at whole, like even if it's like a training simulation that's happening in real life, just kind of like the concept of a simulation um, mm -hmm. as a tool, a pedagogical tool to get someone ready for whatever it may be. Um, I guess like the contamination kind of like also takes back that negative connotation, right? Like a contamination does have like a little bit of a negative connotation, but um, in my work, I kind of like work against and use um, materials and language uh, and spaces against their intended purpose. So I guess I think about contamination in that way, as well as um, it being maybe akin to like a virus, like where you kind of, it kind of gets in you, it kind of becomes a part of you. I do like pollination as well, because it does have like a growth and kind of like futurity aspect. But I also think there's something like urgent in this, 
that mm-hmm. maybe the kind of like contamination speaks to, right? It's not necessarily about like something for the future, but something like right now that's urgent in the right now. Um, as we kind of like look at our, you know, global context, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of urgency in the world. And so I've been thinking about like contamination because I have been like, again, this is a completely unresolved like thread of my research right now, but like like addressing the urgency and I think contamination kind of like you know does two things it um kind of like others that word so it becomes um urgent but also generative um but also kind of like takes it out of its context but like when you say contamination it does make you kind of like stop and think about how that word is being activated and how we understand that word in kind of like the mainstream western context um especially like in a post-covid climate right i think that word becomes very um maybe charged or activated um yeah. in ways that maybe it didn't before covid like i mean i think people maybe stop and think so i that's why i'm resting with that word right now <laughs> Okay, no, that's fine. I just wanted to to understand how are you approaching these differences. One of the things that you just mentioned is that there is this, you know, present urgency. Why do you think it's urgent? Who is see, seeing this as an urgent point of discussion in terms of like how we are entering or I'm not I'm not sure if we're entering or being forced to be more part of this virtual environment, more of this artificial intelligence how these advances in technology are really prompting us to become a different sort of human. And so maybe I'm, I'm, I'm trying to access this point of urgency as to favor technology or mm-hmm. as to favor how we interact with technology or understanding or what is it or, or is it not? Or is, it, is it none of that? Well, I work with undergraduate students. So I teach undergraduate students at Northeastern University, and they are really thinking, they're design students. Sometimes they come from other disciplines, engineering, computer science, neuroscience sometimes. And if we view their life, like when we were in college, a lot of these issues that are now so incredibly visible, that's one, and urgent, that's two. We didn't have that. And if you kind of like shift your point of view to their, you know, undergraduate perspectives of the world that they're inheriting, but also like the conditions that have been created for them, they're really thinking about the future. They're really thinking about how to navigate now in order so they in order for them to have a future, right? It's not like what kind of future, it's like if they need to have a future, that is, that is a real thing. You know, they're very much worried about what's happening around them in terms of technology. They're very critical of technology. We're not getting away from it, it's not mm-hmm. going away. So it's like, okay, we're weary of it. Like even AI, it's just like everywhere, it's in their phones. Like you know, I had a conversation with them about like how to turn off your mic. So Instagram can't, so in theory, Instagram can't listen to you. Who knows if that's just like, you know, something to make you feel better. And they're still kind of like surveilling you. So they're really dealing with a climate of constant surveillance. You know, someone's always like some corporation is always trying to get their attention. They're very, very critical of the access to their data and their identity and they're asking questions, right? And a lot of my work is thinking about virtual spaces as meditative and pedagogical. But I think where I am now is from, I learned from them how just incredibly critical they are of these spaces and their access. Like, okay, the headset is on my head. I don't have agency, right? To even look around, what does that mean? Right, when that, when my like my, my peripheral view is taken away and only accessible through like some kind of like camera system that's in the headset. What does that mean? They become, they're, they're concerned about so much. And I think that's where the urgency lies is like watching them deal with these situations and kind of like as, you know, 
as their facilitator and their professor, it's my job to help them kind of like think through these situations that are so urgent for them. And I learn how to think through them as well, because when I was like 18 and 19, a lot of concerns that they had, I didn't have. And now it's like, okay, so we're in it together. I am, you know, I'm older than you. So I've seen the unrolling of the World Wide Web Mm -hmm. in my lifetime. And I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a say, and I didn't have the opportunity to discuss the pros and cons of this technology and its effects. We just passively mm-hmm. sort of <laughs> went through it and, you know, all of its different iterations by now. And uh, so yes. that's really powerful. Yes, yes. And, they, and they're aware. And I think for us, there was this kind of like passive notion because we weren't aware of like the implications and ramifications of it like getting away from us but they're very like astute and they're like "Mm -mm, no I understand and I'm being very critical and they're very thoughtful with their engagement with technology it's very it's not very passive it's very thoughtful and very well thought out and learning from them every day (laughs) that's awesome you also mentioned an aspect of performative intervention is this something that you take out from the teaching practice and apply it to your own studio practice? So the performative kind of operates two ways. The first way I kind of like activate the performative elements is I'm very fascinated with um, capturing bodies, mostly my body, through kind of like volumetric uh, capabilities or methodologies, whether that be a 3D scan or a volumetric video. And so I became interested in the performative in terms of activating my virtual spaces or my like interactive installations that are mostly that mostly kind of like right now include some version of my body scanned and so the performative uh, spoke to that so the body is kind of existing in two places it's my body existing in two places at the same time rendered differently one is in real life and the other one's com- rendered computationally and I'm I was interested in that um, play or uh, that kind of like co-performative uh, gesture because usually the performances uh, went with the installations or the virtual reality environments and then the second element of the performative that I have most recently become interested in is deploying an agent of myself as performing an academic. And so I've done done a couple of conferences where I've kind of like deployed this performative element in very academic settings that speaks to my work. So that part is about thinking or making an inquiry into the role of an academic and what academic performance looks like. If I perform as Clarice Hill, PhD, blah, 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 association affiliation at a conference and talk about my work. Is that different than performing as my work, if that makes sense? Like just extending my work into a performative um, gesture that it just becomes one piece. So it's not me talking about the work. It's one element of the work that's, again, oozing out into this academic context and then performing. I just become a vessel to perform through. And okay. so I've been really thinking about this academic performance. I work with a collaborator, Ellie Clark. I know her from my PhD at Goldsmiths. We're both in the same PhD program. And we've really been thinking about upending this like academic performance and like the notion of being an academic, right? Um, Because we're both studying art research, that's the PhD. So when you get a PhD, there's like, you know, this certain kind of like assumption of like, now you're a proper academic or whatever that means. And this is what that performance looks like. And so we've done performative works together where we kind of perform a text or we perform each other's texts. So she's quite the opposite of me. She's like very tall and British and Caucasian and I'm like the complete opposite. And so it becomes very interesting when we perform each other's texts because it is, uh, both of our work is a kind of like auto-ethnographic kind of like mining. So when we perform each other's texts, we're using those auto-ethnographic elements that are very similar because we're thinking about our our identities in our kind of like social context, 
but it becomes disrupted or kind of like, again, contaminated through the bodies that's performing the text. And so I've really become interested in how this kind of like academic performance or the expectation of the academic performance can be, again, disrupted, but also like contamination can include others, right? So I've been talking about contamination between us. We've like really uh, started to think, so we write text together, but mostly we perform together. And we've been really thinking about how we can collapse this notion of authorship as well like who becomes the author in these academic commons. Um, and so a lot of my writing um, or my performative gestures, they're done through my character, if I'm, if I'm like speaking to my own work. And then sometimes when we perform together, we will perform through each other's character, our characters, and then our identities. So it becomes very later about thinking about like authorship and where does the performance, because I mean, like everyone's kind of work is a little bit of, you know, their, is their heart, right? It's a little bit of their experience. So really Maybe thinking about... It is part of your soul. It's so part of your soul. Um, especially when you've been doing it for so long, it's so part of your soul. So really not kind of like creating these lines, right? These kind of like very specific vertical slices of like, you know, this person is artist, this person is performer, or this person of act as academic, because we all operate in that identity and kind of like um, creating like this very interesting kind of like rhizome where it isn't about one identity performing at once, but multiple identities emerging and submerging throughout the performance. And so that's what I've been doing and thinking about like performance. I like this analogy of the rhizome for a couple of things. One, it's there's this interconnectedness that it's beneath the surface and it's not visible, mm -hmm. neither tangible immediately but it's also bringing together all of these notions as a whole. So you mentioned something that I have heard from you before, and I have also read from your site online, which is being an academic disruptor. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Black feminist? Wait, let me, let me rephrase that. Black Hispanic feminist academic disruptor, now that you were mentioning ethnographies, what does it really mean? Well, I think that kind of like meaning is always in making, right? And I think as being in academic institutions, there's always a making of what that means and kind of like the expectations, right? I've gone to a couple of different institutions and the expectations, well, for education, and the expectations shift depending on the institution, the context, and how your identity becomes activated in these spaces. And mm -hmm. so in my work, I'm really thinking about how the expectation is only for me. Right. I do have these labels because I have these credentials. That is how I'm recognized in Western society. You cannot escape that. Right. Even though even you kind you, of like try even to if you don't want to, even if you don't want to, it's just the facts of the matter. Right. That's those are the facts. But how can those expectations be used to serve my purpose? Right. Like maybe they don't serve your purpose in the in the moment. But by the time that I'm finished with kind of like disrupting or subverting these expectations, my whole body of work, including myself, becomes a whole. I, I don't really think of my work as separate from me. It's an ongoing research practice that is very much infused in my everyday life. And I kind of like everything I read or I reference in my work doesn't just stay like in the bibliography or in the footnotes, it really does ooze out. And it becomes this like cross-contamination that I kind of spoke to earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for me personally, my work is very inextricably linked to my identity, not necessarily in a way that's like thinking about racialized or gendered identity, but kind of like that is the lens that I view through. So it's not necessarily right. resting on that, but it's about, it's a, it's an entry point, it's a portal. And then hopefully through that entry point, a portal of my identity, it expands to uh, include others, right? And others can see themselves in their positions. And it's not necessarily about overriding or mapping or putting someone in my shoes. It's about, this mm -hmm. is my entry point. These are the issues. And I think other people can access these issues through their own entry points and creating that space for that kind of like gathering or conversation to happen. And so 
uh, my work is not really about like race or gender overtly, although it's in the subcontext. Um, but when I talk about myself as this kind of like racialized and gendered body, that is how I would use. If you look, if you Google me, it's how I go. <laughs> you know, it's when the first photo you see is these kind of like specific categories. So it's like, how do you use that? Not necessarily as a way of like excluding anyone, because my work is not about exclusion even though it has this language associated with it, this language is just an entry point. And I kind of like make it about the entry point. If you read my text, it's not necessarily about thinking in these specific frameworks, but it's like, okay, we're going to start here. And this is the experience that I have because I can't speak to anyone else's experience from their like kind of like racial or ethnic background or gendered backgrounds. So I can just speak through this point, but I think the gathering space is is in this kind of like cross-contamination or this like liminal or this, my collaborator and I call it like an in-between, right? And so that's kind of like how I see that role is like embracing it like this is this is the body that I have and I love my body that I'm in every moment of it wouldn't change it for like anything in the world I love it um but like how can that body be able to speak across like whatever kind of backgrounds in order to create a conversation where we're together like Lassant talks about in the poetics of relation it's about kind of like these opacities and being able to sit in difference but also like be able to communicate past these differences that I'm interested in. Thank you for expressing that. Within all of this context and everything that you have mentioned, what is your opinion in the state of humanity? And we are recording this on January 2024. Yeah, I think humanity is, that is such a good question. Um, as we kind of like watch everything unfold in constantly in news cycles, humanity, I think we need to understand what that is. I think we've kind of gotten away from that. I think people are now fungible, right? We don't consider humanity as a whole. It's like, okay, you get to be human, you don't. <laughs> you get to be I'm human sorry. and you get to be in this little box. Right. You get to occupy this box. And if we even think about kind of like the hierarchies in Western society, right? Like the more say you have, the more you get to be human. We're going very much back to this age of enlightenment, right? We're kind of like revisiting these kind of same paradigms of, an, of these kind of like enlightenment philosophical musings about who gets to be human and who's not human and why are they not human? Da, 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 da. And it's very scary because I think they say history repeats itself, especially if you're not paying attention to it. And I think it just looks different, right? It just kind of like looks different, but we're still in these kind of like capitalist regimes. We've not escaped them. Just capitalism mm -hmm. looks different instead of like, you know, shipping around, you know, sugar and like other kinds of goods. It just you know, it looks like weapons or it looks like whatever. I think we need to reconsider that word. I think yeah. we use it very casually. I think a lot of our language we use very casually when they say humanitarian crisis. I don't actually think we know what that means or we yeah. haven't really stopped to consider what that means. Or maybe mm -hmm. it has gotten so diluted that we have really completely lost meaning within a context. Mm -hmm. You were talking about capitalism is the invention of wants, needs, and desires, right? That's really what it is at the end. Mm -hmm. How is technology being capitalized? I'm not even asking you this, but maybe you can chip in a comment, but I just really think that initially technology was supposed to be this great tool, very egalitarian, and it's none of that anymore. Yeah, well, I think that's the fantasy, right? That's the utopia of it. That's the fantasy that really becomes a nightmare at the end of the day. And I think if we live in these fantasies, we don't understand the full possibilities of technology. So I completely agree with you. It was supposed to be, you know, if you think about like the cotton gin, um, was developed, you know, in these kind of like plantation ecologies in order to produce more cotton, right, without as much labor for us. But what does that mean? Now you can produce more usable kind of like saleable like commodity of cotton, but now you need more bodies in order to 
pull the cotton because the cotton gin only does one uh, element of the process, right? So now you that includes more bodies that you need to to these kind of plantation ecologies, more people, more identities, more kind of like extra um, human labor force, right? And uh, Dory Tungstall in the book um, Decolonizing Design, she speaks to this where she says the invention of the cotton gin means more human labor, more fungible, air quote unquote, I say bodies, not to diminish the contribution, because that's how they see it as fungible bodies, right? Interchangeable bodies. But this is also like human labor, right? And you think about like the implications of just human labor and even technology. It's an extractivist economy. Like the phone looks like this, but a lot of the materials, especially coltan that's in our phone, comes out of the earth, right? The extracting of these materials create these kind of like porous zones, um, not to mention the human labor and the labor conditions associated with the mining of the materials to create something that, you know, later costs a thousand dollars and is being sold in Western context. So if, if we think about like the whole kind of like genealogy of technology from its material origins right throughout its use and even its like death, right? Because what happens with these phones when we get rid of them, they go to e-waste dumps, right? You know, they're not necessarily disposed of properly or recycled properly. Now, you know, there's more of a push for that, but, you know, some people just throw them in the trash and then they just become trash. So it's like a whole life cycle of technology. So it is very much, you know, and I've been thinking about this lately, you know, when you teach students technology, you have to teach them that it's not a neutral tool, right? Now, there's nothing neutral about technology, even from its material. Like, we're all kind of involved in these kind of capitalist regimes of these extractivist economies. All of us, we all use a phone, we all use a computer, but we have to be aware of it, right? And then once you become aware of it, then you get it in your head. It's no longer, like we're talking about like being passive. You're no longer passive. You're like, okay, I have to use this, but you're using it to think through the problem. And maybe even the hope is to create a solution. Because um, I know we're both like teaching in, you know, you know, college settings. Like hopefully, you know, they get to thinking about how to work against these kind of like normalized capitalist regimes of extractivist economies to maybe create a phone that doesn't, maybe it has a fair trade labor force, right? Or maybe they they have like rules on mining, how many, how much of uh, the coltan can come out of the earth and maybe you let the, the mine rest. Like maybe these are all considerations that they kind of like put into practice as they kind of think about having a future, not just what their future looks like, but having a future. So yeah, I think that's a long way of getting back to what you were saying about like technology. It's just a very, I think it's looking at it as a whole, its whole life cycle, origin through death of the technology and kind of like, okay, this is what has been going on. How can we think about that? And I think humanity, like the concept really is at the forefront of that, right? Because even though whatever is being mined, whatever natural resources being mined very far away from us, we're still very much connected, right? Like that, there's that connection. If we think about the human on the other side of the iPhone, who's doing it? Who's providing us this material? What is their life like? I think that's when we will, we will start to bring back the term. It's just not a neutral the phone is not a neutral object. And once we recognize that and that there is a human on the other side and, you know, their labor, they give their labor in whatever context, either consenting or not, in order for us to have the phone, we really need to think about that. I still feel that whatever it is that we are talking about now, we probably will not see much progress. Yeah. <laughs> I'm keeping hope alive. I, I think, I'm, more, I think I'm, I'm a little bit more pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so where are you teaching where 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 do you work right now i uh, work at northeastern university i'm an oh, assistant yes. professor in um xr and immersive technology so extended realities and immersive technology technologies at northeastern university um and i teach in visual studies so 
uh, subject matters similar to art history, um, but looking more at a contemporary context um, and uh, media arts. So also on the studio and world building, um, kind of like critical simulation. So thinking critically about the worlds that you build and the stories that you tell within these worlds. So you're kind of like not replicating some of the negations or violences that becomes easy to replicate in these spaces because you do have so much control over them. What do you mean by that? Is this the counter narrative that you were mentioning earlier? Yes. So the class that I'm teaching now is called Critical Simulations in Immersive Media Design. And in the class, we're using mainstream world building tools. So from the simple uh, open source Mozilla hubs to Unreal Engine not to not use the technology, right? It's not like, okay, the technology is problematic and we're not going to use it, but for using it, let's think about it from the full perspective. So they learn about extractivist economies the first week. <laughs> That's what we talk about. Like, you know, the, the tool, the origin of the tool is not neutral, right? Cloud storage is not immaterial. It's very material. It lives somewhere, right? It's taking natural resources to run. And so we start thinking about our tool from that perspective. So it's mostly about using the tool to, well, we were only in our third week. So the students haven't like started developing their stories yet. Um, but the whole idea of the class is to really use the tool to tell stories that wouldn't normally be expected in those spaces and thinking about how they use the tool from beginning to end. If you're going to use this software, why are you using it? How are you using it? What are the politics behind the software? So we start with Mozilla Hubs because it's open source and thinking about what open source means. And then we will move on to other software. So like Unity and Unreal Engine and really, so they get an idea for how to use their tool, not just in terms of like technical prowess, like, yes, I want you to know how to use it, but right. why are you using it? How does the tool that you're using contribute to your narrative? So they're not passive. They're not like, oh, well, I'm just going to use Maya or whatever, because it's what I know. It's like, okay, what what's going on with Maya? Like what's going on with Blender? How, you know, what what are the politics behind the tools? And that's part of their research is to kind of like talk about the politics behind the tools that they're using and why they're using it. And if they're using ready-made objects, who made them? How did they make them? What kind of um, software are they using? Um, why are you using that specific model? I call them ready-mades, but that specific model. So a model that they did not create, we're calling a ready-made. Mm -hmm. So they get used to that language. So it's not kind of like passive using of, you know, objects, because when you're building these worlds, it gets very exciting to just kind of like download a whole bunch of things and really not think about what you're doing when you're doing that, or like build this world that looks really, really cool, but you're not thinking about how it kind of like operates in a larger conversation of the technology. And so that's what uh, the class is about. What is your goal for these kids at the end of the term? My goal is for them to create a project. So the goal, like the actual <laughs> output is a project. Um, but I want them to really learn how to be practice-based researchers. So at the end of the course, they will, like, even if they did not learn, you know, one line of code in Unity or really use Unreal Engine, if they stuck with Mozilla Hubs, which you don't really know, need to know how to code to use, they need to know how to research their topic, their area of interest, their research question alongside the technology that they're using and ask questions of both. That's it. Why is uh, research important in art? For myself, I kind of like became interested in this kind of like concept of practice-based research during my PhD, um, which is what the PhD is called, practice-based research, where the artwork is critical, just as critical and as important as a scientific study, right? The artwork is making an inquiry. Maybe it's not the procedure looks different, the protocol looks different, but the level of importance is the same. 
And in science um, and technology kind of like progress narratives, we become very interested in like the expectations of these progress narratives. And I think art research specifically has a way of, I would say, infiltrating that space, right? Really getting into that space and kind of like shifting what research looks like or how people understand research. And so when I teach my students practice-based research, it's all very new to them, but they're so trusting and they get into it immediately. Like they really become critical of asking themselves questions as makers that maybe if you weren't doing a deep dive into your research, maybe if you did not have a citation for that model that you have created, right? It wouldn't happen. And then they would teach, they will teach someone else how to kind of like do the same, hopefully, right, in the future or in their, you know, environment, uh, whatever it, whether it be academic or they go into being an artist or creative professionals, hopefully they can kind of like ask questions. Like if they're in an environment where they're designing a game, they can say, hey, why are we, why does that model look like that? Why, you know, why are we using an avatar that does that? And it's just getting them to ask a whole series of questions and they're already inquisitive minds. They're already there. It's just taking them to the level where they can ask questions of what they're interested in, not not necessarily like me projecting my interest on them, but like really diving deep into their own area of research. And then it kind of makes them sufficient because the technology, the tool, they can learn that on, you know, YouTube, lynda.com plenty of tutorials but how to use that tool thoughtfully right how to research that tool why is that the tool that you're using um these are all things that they really can't learn through a tutorial and hopefully i'm hoping that they learn from me what is the project what are they making right now they're building immersive stories so that looks like whatever they want but they have to do research So their uh, project has to have at least 10 citations <laughs> and they have to do case studies. So they have to look at other artists who they're kind of either doing something similar or they're not doing it to the full extent of which they're asking the question of. So they have to do case studies. They have to provide bibliographies for their projects. They have to write um, a project statement and include the and include the citations from the bibliography has to be in Chicago style. It's very full on. Yes. It's all good. It's an amazing class. Theory. You were mentioning earlier that you are working on an article. Is this article yes. about what we were uh, talking about earlier? So it's about thinking, thinking through the concept of world building through kind of like black feminist epistemologies mostly uh, thinking through sci-fi and Octavia Butler, uh, the protagonist in her novels. So how to subvert uh, the linear aspect of space and time in order to either exist in uh, multiple worlds or to be able to transcend kind of like the limit, the material limitations of your body in order to think about how Cartesian coordinates have a certain kind of like expectation and how those expectations can maybe be limiting and problematic. And when you start to move through these spaces in a non-linear way, perhaps disorientation and disruption can kind of like give birth to a new perspective on how to navigate space and what space is. When is it going to be available? I have no clue. <laughs> probably this year it's going through peer review so you know I see. okay yes it's gonna be a little bit what kind of uh coming conferences do you have um so i don't have upcoming conferences currently um but i did three conferences in november and december so okay. one was in finland one was in sweden and the other one was in melbourne but i did not actually fly to melbourne <laughs> Okay. So, When you did these conferences and you're talking about these subject matters, how is it received? People are very curious with the presentation of the work mm -hmm. because everyone kind of like reads their presentation from a paper or a laptop and, you know, it includes some slides. Right. For the conferences that I just um, presented at, I created a video. So the video uh, was sort of a visual meditation that people could watch while they were listening to me 
speak. So it wasn't necessarily about focusing on kind of like grabbing, you know, taking the notes on the slide. It was more about hearing and listening. It's about deep listening. You had nothing else to look at, but these kind of like meditative videos. And some people paid attention more to the videos, which is fine. But they were kind of like repetitive. It wasn't anything kind of like very stimulating, um, mostly including uh, volumetric video and um, rotating 3D models of a singing bowl. And so people were really interested in like the presentation and they were trying to digest the concept. They were like, okay, this is what you're talking about. Oh, I'm super interested in how you see so each presentation was on something different. So one was um, thinking about uh, going back to go forward. So kind of like thinking in a in the rhizome again. So not necessarily about kind of like a linear trajectory, but how to think in a rhizome. That was one. Um, and it included the bowl and the bowl is circular and the bowl was like rotating in a circle or circularly. And the other presentation was about the world building. So again, thinking about coordinates and navigation. And the other presentation was a ceremony. So it was like a meditative ceremony of love in the academic commons, which I think can be a little bit of maybe a chilly place every now and then. (laughs) But thinking about... But thinking about how to survive through this kind of like praxis of being together in in care to go back to humanity, right? This kind of like love as a human for other people in a space. Um, And so it was really it was super exciting because one was more meditative. It included singing, singing bowls and, you know, playing, well, you know, playing the audio from the singing bowls as kind of like uh, restorative, like thought thought moments right so presents a piece of it and then the singing bowl so you could kind of like digest and kind of like think and then then the text started up again so I'm also interested in that like I don't think all of the space in a presentation has to be occupied by the voice I think you can also have interventions and I think in that presentation was maybe 20 minutes and I think maybe I would say more than one third of it included just singing bowls and that's another part of you know the expectation is like really not having to occupy all the space right we don't have to take up every moment it's it's not just a conference where you're doing a presentation but you're actually doing an activation intersecting with what is expected (laughs) (laughs) bring it forward a little bit of what you more likely would experience in an art space they were all um except for the one in melbourne you know held at art and design schools and so that kind of like expectation of the presentation you know people like the performance does not belong in the academic presentations sometimes it's like the expectation and I love just, you know, doing the performative gesture and just playing the singing bowls and everyone has to sit and be quiet, and, you know, and think and be and just say, I think that's, is the performances, you know, happen like, you know, in the art context or in the exhibition space is usually how that happens. But I don't, for me, my work is about this kind of like performance and thinking about performative identity. So I can't just leave it, you know, right, in the exactly. exhibition. Um, so what were you like as a kid? I I was weird. I liked dolls and I liked video games. I liked it all. I'm a half only child. So my sister is quite a bit older than me. So I pretty much grew up by myself, even though she does exist in my constellation. I loved a good world building with the dolls. I did like to create narratives around dolls and play video games. So again, that cross-contamination, right? Where the where the virtual and the physical kind of just happen and collide in kind of like the imagination of like a ten year old. Where did you grow up? I was okay. born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, and I think having a diversity of people to just be around because Brooklyn's a very diverse place um, was also very interesting. So I had a, like a diversity of friends and interactions and plenty of activities from taekwondo to piano lessons and my mom was very good with that yeah 
Do you still play the piano or do taekwondo? Do not do either one anymore. Do not do either one anymore, but had the opportunity to experience both sides. Yeah. Which was great. Yeah. What inspires you? What keeps you motivated? I'm really inspired by questions and questions that emerge from whatever I'm reading or watching. I like to watch TV. I love movies. Um, my undergraduate is in filmmaking, so I'm very much into the watching. Um, and I think questions emerge from from that, from just like interactions. Like my new question on artificial intelligence comes from thinking through what a prediction is. What is a prediction? How do you interact prediction. with a prediction? Right? Like, that's a question that I have. Like, I haven't resolved it. I'm still working on it. But like, what is a prediction? And how do we interact with a prediction? Is a prediction something that is inherently negative? Right? Like, can a prediction be, like, can you consent in a prediction? Right? Like, can you consent in activating this prediction? And how does that change the way that in artificial intelligence um, operates in mm. kind of like normalized society if you rethink what a prediction is um, because AI is just uh, predicting either what you want what you're asking for in policing you know the prediction has another kind of like connotation um, in terms of fa facial recognition um, and predicting who someone is through facial recognition um, so, like, I'm very interested in this question currently in, of what is a prediction? How does a prediction unfold? Yeah. yeah. So I've been doing a lot of research into kind of like divin practices of divination, um, thinking about if that is a prediction um, or kind of like various non-Western cosmologies and belief systems of spirituality and just kind of like thinking through how do predictions operate outside of the computational binaries it's a paradox or you know it, it, there's a crossroads of information and but you did mention something you know this 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 aspect of facial recognition which has been something that has been slowly being implemented in some countries is actually a thing where you are you know walking through the streets and you are being scanned body scanned facially scanned it's this aspect of surveillance. Didn't you mention to me some time ago the processes of facial recognition? It's a flawed technology. Most of us may know that. I think um, the the data sets that they use in order to kind of train these algorithms, they're, you know, inherently flawed. So what becomes a face, and jo Joy Balamwami talks about this, like how with her project, she was at the MIT Media Lab, and she was working with kind of like this mainstream um, facial recognition algorithm that she's a a woman of, uh, you know, a, of dark complexion, and the facial recognition algorithm didn't recognize her, kind of like made her invisible just because of the data set that it was trained on, which is mostly, you know, you know, whatever kind of like, you know, identity, um, whether it be Caucasian or male um, identities. So as being a Black woman, she was immediately erased from the algorithm. And so she's talking about representation in these algorithms, right? Like creating more inclusive data sets, having uh, more inputs from a diversity of stakeholders in the development of these stuff software instead of kind of like the more mainstream stakeholders that, you know, the institution and maybe the corporation that they're being developed within, having a diversity of stakeholders at the table to kind of like speak to the diversity of just human society to go back to humanity and that diversity be representing represented in data sets and so these softwares they're problematic they have been known to misidentify people they're imperfect and you know these misidentifications could cause problems um Catherine McKittrick she did the keynote for I do believe it was the 2017 feminist 
symposium where she talks about reading in Harper's Magazine that the Chicago educational system was using this kind of like predictive algorithm that would predict problem children, right? Like children who are having problems in the, the public school system, the algorithm would make predictions. And then from there, they would create various sets of interventions. And she said, one well, no, the algorithm predicted the death of someone and that actually came true. So if you think about how these predictions can world build and they can, again, back to the cross-contamination, right? They don't necessarily stay in the computational space. They contaminate, they ooze out, and they build the worlds that create these circumstances for the predictions to come through, right? Because of the lack of diversity in the development that Mm -hmm. trickles down to kind of like social uh, and systemic inequities that just create these conditions. And so that really got me thinking about like what is a prediction. Once a prediction happens, it's kind of like fortune telling, like once a prediction happens, is that in the air now, right? Is that just, and does that power that it has, the power that is activated with the prediction being, uh, with the prediction coming coming just to the surface, it, it, it oozes out into the real world. I'm just like, I, it's a very unresolved thought, but I'm just interested in how this like computational space that's very, very much making predictions for whatever reason. I forget what the name of the algorithm that she was using, uh, what it was called, but the algorithm just kind of like replicated what was going on in that space, which was, there was nobody there that looked like her, (laughs) you know, and that kind of like lack of presence just oozed out into like it, it happened in the real world it entered it like kind of became activated in the computation and then it kind of just came back up right like it just it's very interesting cycle of real life the computational space and then back to real life where it's just like this very interesting circle but this thing that you just mentioned about the experiment on chicago schools and the predictors uh for behavior of school children do you know if there is perhaps a development of like programs that could assist some of these predisposed conditions that AI is picking up on young humans, children in order to prevent it? Or is it just another effort to box people into other subcategories of their existence? I think time will tell because that algorithm, I do believe they discontinued the use of it for cost and probably other <laughs> very problematic because it's it's speaking to a very specific demographic um because i she didn't go into the details and no. i am going to read the article i do have the article but like was it a specific kind of like um school district right because maybe you can't deploy such a, such a technology over a school system as vast as the chicago which is like a huge right. city um public school system so i think time will tell as computer science and these kind of like, you know, environments, computer science programs and environments of uh, technological development become more diverse, you will have people asking those questions. You will have ethical questions from identities that maybe, even if you're one person in these, you know, in this space, you're still one person more than used to occupy these spaces. And so maybe you can ask questions. But I think I I don't personally have any um, information as I'm still doing my kind of foundational research and thinking through where I want to enter. Like, is it the school system? Is it policing and surveillance? Like the capitalism behind it? But I think time will tell how these systems become deployed and who's developing them as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a conversation that's starting to come into consideration at Northeastern. We have classes that, you know, think about the kind of ethics of AI and the ethics of technology. So I do think it's definitely uh, more of a conversation than it was even like, you know, five years ago, which is not that long ago, but it, it is in technology. It's very long. I, I would love to hear more about that. It's a really interesting, controversial conversation. 
Okay, so and one we're not going to escape because it's never it's never no, going away. Exactly. Right. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. At least we are able to pose the question. We have we are better equipped to be more thoughtful about it, to bring forward some of these preoccupations and try to address the concerns early on where we are not the passive people from the mid to late 90s that we were not measuring consequences. So I think in a right. sense, there is that level of progress. So, so that's that's good. What you mentioned films, I'm a huge uh, film person. What was the latest film or what are you viewing on Netflix or have seen in the cinema? I have been watching The Gilded Age. Okay. So I do believe it's on HBO. And it's Julian Fellows, who is kind of like the brain behind Downton Abbey, his new show. And it's super interesting. And looking at that kind of like short blip of the Gilded Age, the society aspect of it, along with like the social politics and the larger like capitalism of like the railway systems. And so that has been really interesting uh, to watch. Do you ever draw that. parallels between what's happening in this on the screen with our contemporary life? Yes, I become very interested in like historical fiction of it. Did this actually happen? Is this actually true? I think it's the first episode that so the whole I won't ruin the story, but the storyline is the new rich versus the old rich. That's the whole storyline, and so it starts with this newly rich uh, couple with their two children moving into this obscene kind of mansion <laughs> on like 61st street across the street from the old rich who are like that is unsightly and you know it's just too much um and this kind of like battle versus the new rich and the old rich i don't remember when the show starts but it's like in the late 19th century the opening shot is the a horse and buggy kind of like you know what we would consider like u-haul right now or like rider riding through central park okay. central park used to be seneca village which was a predominantly black community that was pretty much erased to put central park there because the rich were moving uptown and it was such a great scene because some kind of like white you know, marble statue or something, like something totally absurd. <laughs> and, and like, you know, to go into the obscene house that has a ballroom that is like on a horse and buggy riding through Central Park. That's all you have to know in that moment of yep. what's going on. And if you know and the history of Central context. Park, you know why that location and the obscene nature of the object that's on the horse and buggy, I forget what, what it was, but she like imported all this stuff from all corners of the world. So what's also interesting is their fascination with Europe, the American fascination, especially in terms of the new rich there with the UK. So like in the new season, they have a Duke who they're like incredibly fascinated with. And I was like, wow, that's so that's mind blowing is all after all this kind of like liberating myself and, you know, tea, tea party and all this, you're still fascinated with where the origin comes from. Um, yeah. so I, I mean, I find these things very fascinating. Do you meditate? I do. I have been meditating and journaling. That is my new thing. And I'm going to start moving more to doing like yoga and swimming. I think meditating is really good, but I think immersing the whole body is so useful. I've been thinking about that, especially uh, for a year I lived close to a beach. When it got warm, I was like at the beach almost every day and thinking about just being in the water. I wasn't like really swimming, but I was just like in the water, feet in the sand, just being at the beach it was one of the most beautiful beaches I have ever seen. It's like gorgeous with like yes. these sandy dunes and just like being in that space, just like everything yeah. kind of melts into the sand. And yeah, I feel like nature has that power of really mm -hmm. slowing your mind and just kind of like enjoying the experience. If you're in the right setting, I think that it could be very valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you have any advice for young emerging digital media artists? I would say they need to trust themselves. Do not pay attention to what others are really doing around you. And if someone says something about your work that does not serve your practice, 
disregard it because I think, especially with art and tech, trends emerge really quickly that maybe might not happen in like more, you know, storied mediums like, you know, painting and even sculpture. I think with art and tech, the desire to chase the trend is very there. It's very present. Really stick to what you're trying to do. If everyone else is getting famous from whatever they're doing, just stick with what you're doing. I would say after, you know, being in various art and tech and, you know, institutions and circles, it does, I can see that becoming a question in new media artists. Like, how do I navigate the trends if I'm in this kind of trendy field? Because it's a trendy field. Who knows what art and tech is going to look like or even be a medium in 10 years? How do you maintain your authentic identity an authentic voice in a space that can be very full of chatter. That's awesome. Very That's really much to it. especially for those uh, uh, young artists working in digital mediums. It is mm-hmm. very tempting yeah. to chase. Them. It is. But... Yeah, it, it's very, it's very, you know, the desire is there to be recognized. We're artists. We want to have our mm-hmm. work seen. We want to be seen. And yeah, there has to be a moment where that's no longer the focus. It becomes a question that is a focus, not about the visibility of the work. Because I think if your question is interesting, the visibility of your work, even if it's not immediate, will happen. Because a lot of, you know, the art and tech scene, sometimes it's a flash in the pan. Like everyone's kind of like thinking about this one topic and then everyone makes work around it. And then in a year, like not even 18 months, everyone's onto something else. Artists working in technology, it's about like building a narrative through your work. So it's not like fragments as well, like little pieces of this and little pieces of that. Building a cohesive narrative that maybe is not the same story, but it all, you know, references references back to some kind of like origin yeah that would be my suggestion yeah great advice do you have any questions for me this is lovely conversation I, I know we've had a previous conversation but this I think was very interesting in regards to like thinking through our practices alongside yes. each other as well I'm just curious in, in terms of like your thoughts on the maybe intersections or cross contaminations that might emerge for you? I was curious because for one, I had never really heard of this term being proposed in speaking about the virtual world and our present reality. So I was really just curious to hear from you and to unpack it a little bit more, because like you said, it's something that is going to expand this conversation, questions, the ethics of technology. Mm -hmm. I'm not too sure if I'm answering your question, but That's how I proposed the question, because I was curious to find out what you really meant. We haven't spoken in six months, and I already have a new set of conversations just from you. So I know that it is it is fast evolving. (laughs) I mean, I would love to have this conversation again surrounding what you are working on in terms of your article and see how all of these conversations that we have kind of had today really unpacks further and how it becomes a part of your performative realm. Yes, I'm still thinking through some ideas and definitely interested in having a conversation when some of them have kind of like unpacked a little bit further in my current, like, as I said, prioritizing my research, my current research interests. But yeah, I'm definitely interested in like coming back and chatting again. I would love that. Thank you so much for being an oral fixation. I am really happy that we got to, to talk about your work in a deeper sense. And I really look forward the next time that we do this. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed listening to Clarice. We could have gone on talking forever, but for now, this will do. This conversation was recorded virtually. For more information on this episode and to give your support to the podcast, please visit our website at oralfixation.art. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Oral Fixation Art Podcast. Until next time, ciao.
Thank you.